Heyo. Well, hot damn, it's good to be back. Ha ha. Ha ha. Ha ha. I have been so stressed all of these months about how I have patrons. They are giving me money every month in exchange for me producing a podcast. I haven't made an episode. It's been months. I'm a giant asshole. So, now that I've finally gotten around to it, been able to, uh, that was kind of the main problem, was unable to, um, didn't really have anything to research on, didn't have time in the day living out of my truck, no space, no quiet, you know, all kinds of business. Also, jail sucks. Anyway, <laughs> I do, I've done my best to make this a decently long one and as well-researched as possible, which you will come to find was a little bit frustrating. It was a little, it was a little bit difficult to research this properly until I, uh, until I kind of got the hang of how I was supposed to research it. Actual books. It required actual books from the library. The good old days. They're back. Anyway, after many misadventures and thankfully more good adventures, I am back and established and I have a steady internet connection, so here we are. Personal updates while entertaining enough on podcasts. Generally, in my life, they're for, they're for TikTok. If you want more personal updates or to keep, keep up with my shenanigans, TikTok is the place for that. Um, yeah, well, I guess let's fucking get into it, eh? Fuck, goddamn. Sorry, <laughs> my back hurt. I, there's a hole in my air mattress. And I'm not looking forward to some of this, how irritated some of this information gets me. You'll see. Hopefully it's fun. I think that it's fun when I'm grumpy. I hope you do too. So, a couple months back, I met a small group of amazing people who lived on a little farm in the middle of the woods. Their small piece of property was nestled up right at the edge of a national forest. Initially, I found my way out there because I was trading my decrepit but technically solid-ish um, 30-foot camper trailer that I had been living in for the previous few months in exchange for some art. I could have probably sold it for about a thousand buckaroos, but to be quite honest, I wanted more than anything just to be rid of it so I could leave town and go traveling, living in my truck again for a while. And it was the last thing that I needed to clear out before I could start making tracks. However, the sweet hippie couple I bought it from gave it to me for a few hundred under the asking price just because they liked the cut of my jib. And I liked the cut of this guy's jib, so I figured I could be free of the burden, help him get the four walls and a roof that he needed, and have some beautiful paintings on top of it. Seemed like a win-win to me. After getting the trailer uh, parked and leveled and whatnot, they offered to let me camp on their property for the night, and they made me dinner. We ate tacos while sitting on a candlelit deck together for quite a while, and it was during this bit of socialization that I met the matriarch of the land. While I am an asshole, and so I cannot recall her name, I was very fond of her. Although we were hundreds and hundreds of miles from my hometown, 
She had also spent some time living in the area in which I grew up. A bit of a strange coincidence, which I took as a sign that I had found myself to be exactly where I was supposed to be at that time. She had spent a fair amount of her life living a nomadic existence, much like myself, so we bonded over travels, stories, as well as a shared passion for spiritual belief systems, history, and folklore. She told me a story that got my folklore nerd mind wheels turning. Folklore nerd mind wheels turning. Wow. (laughs) And I have been planning on making this episode ever since. While talking about my time sailing tall ships, the subject transformed into shanties and limericks. Of course, I had to sing her the chorus of the good ship Venus. The lyrics are extremely vulgar, but that's why it's so fun to drunkenly sing at the top of your lungs with your shipmates. The grotesque imagery tainting the minds of any soul unfortunate enough to be wandering the docks late on a Saturday night. The chorus goes as thus. Cover your ears, children. Seriously. On the good ship Venus, by Christ you should have seen us, the figurehead was a whore in bed sucking a dead man's penis. Lovely song. Great to sing drunk. (laughs) The matriarch got a hearty chuckle from this and said that she knew a goddess who would love that song. She told me the story of the goddess named Squat. According to her telling, long ago, as in like the 80s, Through the alleys of San Francisco, rumors began to circulate among the street folk. The hippies, the travelers, the gutter punks all began to swap stories of an entity who could come to them and help them in times of need. Finding safe places to sleep at the time was extremely difficult in the city, and so it likely started as a form of gallows humor, you know? Oh, you gotta sleep on the sidewalk in front of the corner store in the rain? Better get praying. The joke began to spiral as more details were added to the story of this deity, who was said to help the street folk find safe places to stay at night. It was first said that one must make a small offering of alcohol, or of the sweet herb, if you will, and a safe place would be granted. Eventually, this entity was given a name, Squat. Then, the prayer evolved, which goes, Squat, Squat, I need a spot. After a while, more intricacies were added to flesh out this newly born deity, including its appearance and personality traits. As tales of squat spread across the US with those traveling around by thumb or by rail, so did the deity begin to take on its own identity. Eventually, it became known that this god loves nothing more than a dirty limerick. Also, the deity decided that she would prefer to be a woman, and so was born the goddess Squat and the tramp's tradition of offering illicit substances and perverse limericks to her in exchange for safe places to sleep or to squat for longer periods of time. Funny thing, this seems to be primarily an oral story, passed by word of mouth among tramps and street trash like myself. While trying to search the internet for any additional information about squat, I found squat, found Jack squat about squat. (laughs) I found only several pages of search results about yoga. Apparently, squatting in yoga is considered a way to channel goddess energy. Funniest thing about this is that it's probably mostly part of the New Age whitewashing of yoga, and therefore ties in quite nicely with the main body of this episode. (laughs) What drew my fascination most toward this story of the goddess squat was the way that it started off as almost nothing. Then the story and the goddess herself evolved and took on a life of its own through the consistent retelling of the tale. It's an example of folklore actively developing in real time. 
Folklore is exactly that, lore of the folk, meaning stories or beliefs that exist among the people. It doesn't have to be ancient, written down in text from 800s, from the, from, from the 800s or hundreds of years ago or from ancient times or anything, or tied to some spiritual or religious belief system or even regional culture to be folklore. It's just whatever people believe. I'd like to give thanks to a folklorist and author that I follow on the internet. Her name is Piper CJ for putting this into words a few times because I hadn't been able to explain it properly on my own until I found her. Go follow her on TikTok or read her book, I guess. It's called The Night and Its Moon, I believe. I've never read it, so I don't know if it's good or not, but it's got some gay stuff in there if you're into that. I love her and she's amazing, and if you like this podcast, you'll like her. Anyway, that being said, with Squat, we can see how stories and folklore evolve over time. It's much like that game, uh, was it Grapevine or Telephone, that I had to play in elementary school. I don't know if anyone else did. Millennial here. Um, one person whispers something into the ear of the person next to them, and then that person repeats it to another person, and so on until at the end of the line, that original statement is said out loud. Sometimes it's the very same thing that was said in the beginning that comes out at the end, and sometimes it's totally different and completely out of left field. But often, it's different, yet very similar in concept to what was initially said. The latter is what happened with our beloved goddess of the streets. So the story of Squat reminded me of an episode of Supernatural, okay? Yes, I reference the show a lot, I love it, and they mention all kinds of cool folklore shit. It's relevant. Anyway, it reminded me of an episode in which they have to go after a ghost that was killing people in a small town. As the episode progresses, they find that a whole lot of people are reading about this ghost on a website, and somehow, the way that the ghost appeared to people and took people out was changing in accordance with new information as it was uploaded to that site, evolving based on the belief of a large number of people, just like what happened with Squat. So in the show, they call this type of entity a tulpa. I had never heard of a tulpa or the phrase tulpa before I watched this episode, but I decided that I wanted to learn more about them, and oh boy, I was not ready for this rabbit hole. Now I know that in most of my episodes, I come upon some aspect of whatever creature or concept we're discussing that I have to poke fun at or work to unteach because of misinformation or certain representations in pop culture, but none have made me groan and facepalm the way that I have while trying to research tulpas. Oh, how I have suffered for my work this time. Be warned. I'm probably going to be very grumpy at some point throughout this recording. (laughs) But bear bear in mind, I don't talk shit for the sole purpose of talking shit. If I'm talking shit about something, it's because for some reason in my brain, I feel like it's harmful in some way. Or disrespectful, you know? There's always- I'm not just- I'm not just a dick. I'm a smartass, too. I'm a a fucking know-it-all and a dick, okay? Get it right. So the concept of the tulpa was originally a part of Tibetan Buddhism. Despite my best efforts, my research never really led me to enough reliable and in-depth information for me to feel comfortable 
going into details about Buddhism in general. I've studied it a fair amount over the years off and on, but never like in depth, you know? And it's not my religion, I don't subscribe to it, so I don't want to talk about it too much from my dummy brain. I don't want to accidentally disrespect the religion or say anything incorrect and mislead anyone. So I'm only going to say the stuff that I read from trustworthy resources and I'm, once again, I'm always open for criticisms if I say anything wrong, you know? Anyway, that being said, uh, if any of my listeners have a solid background, education, or knowledge about Buddhism, I'd love to pick your brain and have you join me on an episode about it or something. That's always an option too. The specific type of Buddhism we need some information about is Tibetan Buddhism, and even more specifically, the Tantra. So Tantric Buddhism is also called Vajrayana, which means the way of the diamond thunderbolt. The school of Buddhism was formed surrounding a philosophy called Tathabhatagaba. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Kick me in the mouth if that's way too off. Um, yes. Yeah, I don't know how to say it. <laughs> but it means the womb of enlightenment doctrine. This philosophical movement arose around the third century, and it asserts that all living beings have within them the seed of Buddhahood, meaning that we've all got a spark of the divine within us, and through practice and skill, we are all capable of reaching a level of enlightenment the same as the Buddha, and we can reach Buddhahood ourselves. The journey to Buddhahood begins when we are able to recognize that potential within ourselves and learn to strengthen our connection with the universe. Boiled down, the primary goal of Tantric Buddhism is enlightenment, enlightenment, enlightenment for the sake of enlightenment itself, rather than for the purpose of serving or honoring any other power, entity, or cosmic intent. It was unlike the Hindu Tantra that was popular at the same time, because while the Hindu Tantra utilizes ritual and magic practices for secular ends, Tantric Buddhists were working as individuals for personal reasons. And while the philosophy upon which Tantric Buddhism was built was first born in the 3rd century, Tantric Buddhism itself didn't become established until the 9th century. Between the 9th and 12th centuries, individuals who felt the call began to leave the monasteries and travel around the continent as Mahasiddhas. Uh, Mahasiddha is a word that refers to someone who practices, teaches, and embodies all that Buddhist spirituality honors and holds significant. These individuals had a great deal of success revitalizing the religion across Asia as it began to decline in popularity. In the 12th century, Islam became the most powerful religion in that area, in that region, and soldiers were sent to monasteries to eradicate Buddhism in India to the best of their power. And they did a good job. This meant that essentially they raided all of the monasteries and killed all of the monks and scared the populace away from being Buddhists. Luckily for Buddhism in general, these practitioners of Tantra managed to leave the monasteries before the religious war swept through. Um, not much of a war. The the religious, the religious slaughter, but before that happened, most of them were out of, about in the world and in other countries. So, yay, it survived. Sorry, I just, I, I hate the way 
so many Abrahamic religions throughout human history have done this very thing anytime they don't like a religion. It's... Humans are nasty. Anyway, carrying on. Tantra was very successful as a religion in other nations and among cultures outside of India. In particular, Tibet, which is why Tantra is mostly associated with Tibetan Buddhism. This form of Buddhism puts the belief into practice, which emphasizes skill and magical workings through ritual actions designed to pull forth and utilize energies in order to reach enlightenment for the self, if that makes sense. It holds the belief that there is a seamless connection between all living things and the energy that makes up the entirety of the universe, meaning that individuals and individual things don't really exist because of this invisible and ever-present connection. You know, there's no gap between me and this weird board that I'm touching because the energy that exists in the universe is flowing through me into it and through it into what it's up against and it's all just one big little cycle of energy with no real distinction between us you know does that make sense anyway (laughs) i lost my spot because i was staring at the piece of wood that i was touching anyway we're i'm back uh energy is everywhere and everything and it is either flowing or it's blocked Tantric practices are used to reorganize and manipulate these energies through rituals, symbols, actions, sounds, and visual imagery. It is believed that certain energies resonate or vibrate more strongly or just differently with different avenues into the physical realm. This is why the four main forms of tantric work were created in order to find and manipulate different types of energy for different purposes. Tulpas are among the Buddhist traditions associated with Tantra. These include, these four are the mantras, dharanas, mudras, and mandalas, along with tulpas. The tulpa isn't a ghost or a god thought of by a bunch of people like I first thought, but a method of deep meditation like the other forms of Tantra. Did I say at first that there were only, that there were four Yes, I did. There are five. Tulpas, and then the other four. The Mandra, Dharanas, Mudras, and Mandalas. Okay? Mandalas. Mandalas. Mandala. Shut up. Because while I was reading, I got pissed off that I didn't know what these other tantric practices are. So I figured you might want to know as well. Mantras are pretty familiar to those of us existing in Western culture, at least. Even if the common use of the word is sort of willy-nilly, most of us have at least a vague idea of what a mantra is. Mantra? Pissing out the window and shitting out the window are two different things. That's my mantra. And don't you fucking argue with me about that. They're totally two different things. Words to live by. Words to live by. Anyway, this example... Uh, and use is actually kind of close to the original meaning in the sense that it's a phrase or a statement or a set of words that hold meaning to you and and this one that i yeah this one does to me it doesn't have to make sense to you but deep down you know i'm right pissing out the window and shitting out the window are irrefutably two different things in buddhist practice however it's a bit different 
A mantra is a sacred set of sounds that one repeats during meditation to aid in creating and maintaining a spiritual connection. It can be a phrase or a series of words, but often it's simply sounds that resonate with you or with the energies that you're trying to work with. A well-known example of this is OM. Like, you know, OM. Yeah, you know what OM is. The purpose of it is not only to clear or focus the mind, body, and spirit, but to pull forth and, you know, manipulate or reorganize the energies that associate themselves with that resonance and vibration. You know what I mean? The next one is the Duranis. On the surface, very similar to mantras. They are chants, a series of words or phrases designed to generate protection and veneration for the practitioner. I cannot talk because I'm all hype because it's my first podcast in months. Pay no mind to my silly mouth. Anyway, they're designed to generate protection and veneration for the practitioner. They are recited during meditation, similar to mantras in what they are, but they are used for the different purpose of, you know, protection, rather than sucking out some energy. The third, mudras, are visual representations of spiritual vows or phrases. They're physical gestures, usually done with the hands or with the position of the body. If you imagine an image of someone in meditation, you may have a picture in your head of someone sitting cross-legged with their hands together in front of them. The seated position and the placement of the hands are both mudras. These are used in conjunction with mantras and dharanis to supplement their power or effectiveness. Encyclopedia Britannica, my scholarly source, describes these as a sort of seal to ward off evil or provide protection to the practitioner while they use their mantras during meditation. And lastly, we come to mandalas, which, once again, people existing within Western culture are probably familiar with. I knew of them basically my whole life, but didn't really know anything about them. My first real dive into them was when I got into Carl Jung as a teenager. Carl Jung was a total freak, and I believe far too influenced by the whole New Age thing, which I'll get into later, but I did learn a lot from his books. Even if what I learned was just different concepts to look up further from people that are more trustworthy sources. You know, I could do a whole episode on him and how he approached spirituality and psychology as two sides of the same coin, and what's cool about it and very wrong with it, but that's not the point of this episode. It is related, though. Anyway, he was obsessed with mandalas. Side note, I do not believe in the mandala effect either. That's always a fun debate. Mandalas are images designed to invoke certain feelings in the observer or to represent some aspect of the unknown or spiritual process. Usually they're abstract geometrical patterns in the form of a circle. Some even tell stories in their shapes and patterns. I think they're neat. Once again, these are used in meditation. From what I can tell, most often in pointed meditations, where the practitioner has a specific goal or purpose to the meditation session, and they choose the mandala that resonates with that purpose or that energy that's associated in order to focus on that purpose and intent. It has been difficult to find real solid information about the original meaning and details behind the tulpa because the internet, yes even Google Scholar, is inundated with a bunch of nonsense. 
according to a research article by Natasha L. Mikes and Joseph P. Laycock. <laughs> Laycock. <laughs> the tulpa is an intentional manifestation, meaning that the pr- practitioner essentially imagines a being so hard that it slowly manifests into the corporeal. Now, in actuality, this doesn't mean you're creating a living flesh-and-blood entity. One has to keep in mind that with spiritual and mystical work, much of the language is metaphorical, particularly among Eastern religions, and even more particularly among those religions that have been popularized in the West after an English-speaking person tried to make sense of them with their Western Christianized mind. So by saying that these manifestations become real, in air quotes, isn't the same as saying that they develop a physical body like myself or you? Maybe you. I can't verify that you exist in the physical realm, but I feel it's fair to say that you're most likely some kind of person, right? The concept of what is and is not real in the context of spiritual and psychological work is a little different from the scientific criteria, you know? Like, it's real in my head. Don't mean there's a door in my butthole, you know? Why am I... Don't... don't question me. A tulpa is more of an imagined identity, used by the practitioner to meditate more deeply, allowing them to see things from a perspective different from their own. The process involves clearing your mind and imagining a being different from yourself. Essentially to have a discussion with them, or an argument with them in your own head, to later come out of the meditation with a new and evolved view of a certain subject. I think initially the tulpa was supposed to take on a form or manifestation that resonates with the particular energies you're trying to meditate upon and work with, you know? It takes a long time and a great deal of effort because in order for this method of meditation to work, the tulpa needs to be like fully fleshed out, so to speak, (laughs) and detailed enough as its own identity to ensure an actual conversation that can lead to an intellectual or spiritual breakthrough. So this is where we come to the part, one of the parts, that pissed me off so much. The blatant misinformation is just and the ignorant bullshit that I came upon while trying to find actual information about tulpas made me want to rage quit the internet. Not only because the videos on YouTube that I came across were just full of shit, but like everything, everything, everything about trying to research this on the internet, oh my. And now, unfortunately, I have to talk about theosophy. Theosophy technically came before the big stinky New Age movement, which spread around in the 1940s and 1950s, but I put it in the same category, myself. The New Age movement was essentially a phenomenon in which white people, mostly across the US, started co-opting parts of various Eastern religions and ancient European forms of spirituality, mixing them all together, and claiming that they were tapping into ethereal or extraterrestrial energies. The backbone of this movement involved a belief that some form of apocalypse or large-scale spiritual revolution was imminent. Many New Age believers were of the impression that there was some division among humanity, in which some people themselves obviously were connected to extraterrestrials or were somehow spiritually special and significant, and those who weren't tapping into these things were less than, 
and would be left behind during the revolution. I can imagine that you see where I'm coming from in saying that this is kind of problematic, right? The, the whole uh, sup supremacy thing, you know what I mean? Nasty shit. I mean, it sounds fucking crazy, right? Just because it was. It is. Unfortunately, this movement gave the people involved a real strong sense of superiority and self-aggrandizement, leading many to write books, which were then read by scores of curious people who were successfully brainwashed and began to believe this shit themselves. And even today, with all of the information in the world at our fingertips, these beliefs still linger, even among the younger generation of pagans and witchy people. Part of this issue is young people, eager to learn about non-Christian belief systems and much like those who came before them, finding comfort in the idea that they might be special. It preys on people. Humans in general have a tendency to prefer information that makes them feel good or which coincides with what they want to believe. This is an example of that bloody cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias that leads people to be unable to separate facts and feelings or from having the ability to rationally vet their sources. You see, it's it's a it's a hell of an issue, especially in political discourse these days. Um, but yeah, this whole thing, it fucked me up for even researches, researching this properly for you guys. So go be mad at those, those nerds over there who are believing this nonsense. This is where the concept of the starseed comes from, if you've heard of that. And I'm sorry if you have. And unfortunately, if you really dig into it, it does, it ties pretty directly with white supremacy at the roots. That's one of the biggest problems I have with the New Age movement. And, of course, not to get on my high horse or anything, but you know I take this whole folklore, religion, spirituality, history, culture stuff very seriously. Um, it's the appropriation and blatant bastardization of older cultures and spiritual beliefs or practices. That's why it's so hard to find real old-school details about tulpas and other ancient or even just pre-Christian religions or belief systems. I mean that, and, you know, the effective eradication of those belief systems by the church. A little bit of column A, little column B here. 90% of the shit you find while trying to research even on Google Scholar is this nonsense and it's whitewashed and translated into a, even if it's subconscious, a Christianized narrative to the point that it's unrecognizable. And this, unfortunately, seems to be what happened with tulpas because of theosophy. Theosophy is a school of thought that was established late in the 1800s in the USA and I personally think they're largely to blame for the New Age movement. It was pushed into the public eye by a Russian immigrant named Helena Blavatsky. This bitch did the unthinkable and published a book. The first popular exposition of Theosophy was in 1881 in a book called The Occult World by A.P. Sinnott. In A Textbook of Theosophy, C.W. Oh, what's his last name? <laughs> C.W. Leadbeater. Leadbeater. <laughs> he states that theosophy isn't necessarily a religion, but more of a philosophy used to make sense of existing religions. He claims that it is used as an explanation of the scheme of evolution of the souls and bodies contained in our solar system. 
even calls it a science in this regard. He insists that it's a science because those who believe it see it as facts and knowledge that can be obtained through observation and study. Which is the problem here. To quote old C.W., it asserts that man has no need to trust blind faith, because he has within him latent powers with which, when aroused, enable him to see and examine for himself, and it proceeds to prove its case by showing how those powers may have awakened. So literally the opposite of science and exactly very much blind faith. And it's quite frankly a bit difficult to make sense of what's written in this text from the perspective of reality. Yes, I did check out this book. <laughs> and also because of the English language, this book is comprised of many run-on sentences full of needlessly obscure and repetitive words. It's like it was written by a 19-year-old narcissist who took a lot of mushrooms one time. But what I've gleaned from this shit show is that theosophy is based largely upon the belief that the human soul is infinite, and the reality that we experience is only the lowliest of the countless bodies in which our souls are inhabiting simultaneously. The soul allegedly inhabits and affects bodies, our body, throughout each moment in time at once. Which is why, through intense introspection, people can supposedly just understand the birth and death of the universe, watch as mankind evolves, and also see the future. That's the big basis according to this guy. Oh, and that we're part of a sort of macrocosm that is our solar system. With the basis of theosophy out of the way, we get to learn about Helena Blavatsky. Helena co-founded the Theosophical Society in 1875 in New York. She became interested in Western esotericism as a teen and claimed to have traveled around the world. She was born into a wealthy aristocratic family, which is how I assume she would have been able to do this. Anyway, she claimed to have traveled to Tibet, and she said that she met spiritual leaders there who taught her a great deal about spirituality and philosophy and Buddhism. Now, biographers and critics agree that um, she made at least most of this up. It seems as though she spent most of that time period in Europe, in fact. She moved to the U.S. and started working as a spiritual medium, and was rather aggressively called out as a fraud. In 1877, she published a book called Isis Unveiled, in which she described her belief in theosophy. She believed it was the best way to tap into an ancient wisdom that lay in the groundwork of all religions. She eventually moved to India, and theosophy spread throughout that area due to her, although while there, she was accused of producing fraudulent paranormal phenomenon. So she tried to trick people into thinking spiritual and paranormal shit was happening, when it really wasn't. A big surprise coming from her, based on all this other stuff that we've learned about her, yeah? Big, big surprise. Within her theosophical doctrines could be found a sort of hodgepodge melting pot of beliefs, cherry-picked from several older or ancient belief systems, and a belief in a spiritual hierarchy on top of that. The hierarchy is what made me think New Age, you know? She believed that from the initial spark of the universe came forth seven rays of light, which were divine beings, who then created the universe through trial and error, eventually landing on this version of reality, 
They are clearly sadists. Fuck you, beams of light. Fix it. Fix it. It's broken. I've had enough. Pick a different reality. Anyway, <laughs> she advocated for the idea of a root race, each divided up into seven sub-races. The first being pure spirit, and the others, I guess, lived in various places on Earth. The second race lived by the North Pole. Uh, I guess the fourth root race lived in Atlantis. But here's, here's the problem. She, she believed that during the fourth version of Earth that was created, higher beings from space came to the planet and hung out in Atlantis. The Atlanteans were therefore the children of these higher beings and had psychic powers and uh, were therefore better better souls. And this is where the, the start of the weird quasi-Nazi belief in star seeds happened. You know? It, I don't know. It's why I hate her, and it's why I blame her for weird racist witches today. <laughs> While she often claimed to be a Buddhist, many stated that her version of Buddhism had very little to do with that of Buddhist scholars or practicing Buddhists. Which explains how she ended up so far fucking off from the original idea of a tulpa in Tibetan Buddhism. She pushed the idea that you can use your mind to create a physical entity that is eventually powerful enough to exist on its own and take on its own identity in life. She also referred to these as thought forms. Maybe she got this idea because she didn't actually study in Tibet, but perhaps read books about Tibetan Buddhism, and there was a translation error? Coupled with her having the westernized mindset that comes from being raised in the Russian Orthodox Church? I'm not sure, I'm just trying to make sense of this. Her works on theosophy that were pushed into the mainstream, buried, then resurrected during the New Age movement, then pushed back into the pits of hell where they belong yet again, and once more brought to the public eye to infect the world thanks to the internet. Um, which is when the bronies, adult fans of My Little Pony if you don't know, found out about her version of Atolpa and they all they doomed us all to the pits of eternal suffering along with them. I haven't got the mental fortitude to read these posts that were made on various public forums, namely 4chan, of course, it all starts on 4chan, does it not, in 2009. Someone made a post talking about how there was a spiritual practice that supposedly created an imaginary friend. Now, because of this post in 2012, Bronies caught on to the idea and fucking galloped away with it. Galloped right into the sunset with it. <laughs> this goddamn Brony shit is the main thing that I came across while trying to do research for this podcast, and I was appalled. It was seriously, I was like, ooh, I'm gonna do tul tulpas, I've got time to sit down and do some reading and research some stuff, watch some videos. All bronies. All bronies. <laughs> the bronies decided to start an online community where they discussed their journeys in creating their tulpas. Of course, their tulpas were meant to be in the image of their favorite ponies. As you may have assumed, this got sort of out of hand and all of the feedback from others paired with a, question, a questionable grasp on reality to begin with led to a sort of 
mass delusion, from what I can tell. Vice did a cringe fest of an article in 2014 in which a reporter discussed this whole ordeal with bronies, and many truly believed that they had successfully created their tulpas and now had close, intimate, ongoing relationships with them. Yes, many even truly believed that they were in a romantic relationship, and I reiterate, this is not what a tulpa was in the first place. Fascinatingly enough, though, this still, as much as I hate it, this is another example of something that I think is really cool about folklore, okay? So it's not what a tulpa is in Tibetan Buddhism. It's not. But with centuries of people taking the word tulpa and making it mean something else and then the internet getting their hands on it and word of mouth, telephone, grapevine, squat, squat. It's it's another example of something folkloric taking shape and evolving in real time into something totally different from what it was in the beginning. And I suppose that I can't can't pass judgment and talk shit about it in its entirety because it's the exact same type of phenomenon that I was praising at the beginning of this episode. So I'll give it that. I'll give it that. I hate it. But in that sense, it's still the same kind of cool shit I was talking about earlier. So I've been humbled in this realization. Don't push it, though. From here, um, I continue trying to research. I usually do a wiki dive and then go into external links that were used to cite information on the wiki, go through folklore message boards on sites like Reddit, and yes, watch YouTube videos to take notes from so I can further research. All of these usual methods of study were blocked by an insurmountable dam of videos and posts talking about tulpas as if they are physical beings that can be manifested through intentional thought and deep meditation, or at least imaginary friends that become so real they can interact with you. And I guess that's what a tulpa is in modern day, even if I strongly disagree. And because of all this, I had to deep dive into fucking theosophy and read those damn texts that made my eyes melt out of my body. So for putting me through all of this, I sentence the internet to a bonk on the head. I'll post the script and onto my Patreon for you guys. If anyone wants to join my Patreon shit, my Patreon shit. Same name as here, Back Alley Alchemist. I haven't been super active on there, but I intend to be more so now that I'm in a stable living environment. And I intend to keep doing research and putting out podcasts regularly again. Uh, Follow me on all the other social medias and whatnot. I'll try to... It'll be difficult to do... To transfer my sources from this iPad onto this phone that I'm using to record. But I'll do my best for y'all. If not, I'll just put those also in the Patreon. Oh. Oh, there we go. I'm gonna... And then go fuck myself. My brain is mush. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining me in 
um, having to experience this kind of mindfuck. We went from some wholesome old school, like, meditation practices and Buddhism with a little bit of history in there to, uh, bronies thinking that they're fucking ghost ponies, such as my life. There are ups and downs in every profession, yeah? Later, nerds. <laughs> Talk to you soon.